Well, we are back in our study on the mothers of Christ, looking at these women that uh, we see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew. And once again, we're going to read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nation. Nation was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boab was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, if you read through the Bible next year, and you get to the first portion of Matthew chapter 6, this may not be the day when you say, my heart just soared today. Because for us, we're reading a whole group of names that seem strange, hard to pronounce, and may or may not somewhere back in the recess of our mind ring a bell. But that's because we don't have the genealogical awareness, the family tree awareness that people in that time did. No, we kind of work on ourselves as individuals. And who are you? My name is Jim Larson. I'm the pastor of the Camarillo Evangelical Free. And I have a wife and four kids and nine grandchildren. And that's about it. We don't move back. We don't move sideways all that much. We just, we are kind of a unit. But this was not the case in that time. One of the things we learned from the genealogy of Matthew is that it is rooted in reality. It is rooted in fact. That what we are reading is really a history. It's not a story. Matthew does not start out his gospel. Once upon a time, there was a man. We like once upon a time stories, don't we? We like once upon a time stories that have a hero, a villain, someone to be rescued. We love those stories and we like our villains to be vile and we like our heroes to be heroic and we like our damsels in distress to be beautiful, and we like clear lines. We like happy endings. We want everything packaged nice. But you know, Matthew tells us that life is messy. You know that inherently, don't you? Life is messy. Our heroes are tainted. They're not quite so heroic. Sometimes our villains aren't quite as villainous as we think. And sometimes our damsels in distress aren't all that noble. That's kind of what Matthew does. He, he takes people that we might call the bad apples. We might say, we want to move those to the back of the family tree. If we're going to a, re- to a job resume, 
and we had some difficult times early on in college, we wouldn't say something like, uh, yes, I'm here for this job today. First thing I'd like you to know is I flunked out of UCLA. But then I got my life together, and I, that might be a part of the resume that we conveniently leave out. Because those darker parts of the resume, we don't particularly want to showcase. You know what Matthew teaches us? Those things can be showcased. Because we find heroes that aren't quite so heroic. Matthew tells us there are relations that are worth showcasing that we might not want to showcase. And we've talked about three of them, and we're on our fourth one today. Four women, and that in itself is unusual, the fact that there are women that appear in the genealogy. Because that was a time when you talked about fathers, but you didn't talk so much about mothers. So when Matthew brings mothers into the genealogy, there's a reason why he does it. There's something where he is bringing these so-called bad apples and putting them in the front and saying they're not quite as bad an apple as you might think. There's another reason that uh, they come from Canaanite stock, or they come from Gentile stock is a better way of putting it. And having come from Gentile stock, you might say they aren't the pure bloods, they aren't the nobility, they aren't the blue bloods that we would like to showcase. But Matthew says, no, let's showcase them. And they're women who have issues as well. But Matthew moves them to the front because Matthew's story is not once upon a time. Matthew's story is not a story where everything comes neatly bundled and neatly tied up. No, Matthew's story is a hard, difficult story. And one that says that Jesus Christ is identified with humanity. And as human beings, we all have issues. And so we come to that passage that says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mothers had been Uriah's wife. He's not even mentioned by name. So to figure out what's going on here, we're going to have to move back, once again, back in time to 2 Samuel chapter 11, to one of the, uh, to undoubtedly the low point of the greatest king of Israel's life. There are people that know very little about the Bible, very little about the Old Testament. In fact, there are people that hardly know there are two parts to the Bible. If you're one of them this morning, don't feel bad because that's how we learn. We get in and we dig around and we figure out how it's put together. But there are people that hardly know that, but they know a little bit about the name David. And there are two names that if people know very little about David, that they normally connect with him. One is Goliath, one of the high points of David's life. The story that is remembered, the shepherd boy who slew the giant and had a great day, a glorious day for Israel. And the other is <coughs> Bathsheba the low point of David's life. Now we're going to read a story. We're going to talk about a story today that is a difficult story, but I want to tell you right at the beginning. There are people that in the actions that we're going to describe, yes, even preachers, even today, who will 
try to somehow or another make Bathsheba complicit in the story, that she somehow or another was an active participant in terms of giving some sort of approval or some sort of participation like that. We're going to point out a little bit different story today because I think it's important for us to understand in light of reality, and this is very important. The Bible is a real book. It was not written in the 20th century, although 21st century, although it could have been. Could have been. And so it starts off. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, In the spring, <coughs> excuse me, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. And there's something right out of the beginning that seems to imply that David was in a place where he shouldn't have been. That if the armies are going out to war, that the warrior king's position, his position is that the head of the troops, not behind the troops. His position does not, is leading the charge, not following the charge. His role is not to be back in Jerusalem. So there's that implication that David is in a place where he shouldn't be. Perhaps he is going soft. Perhaps he is getting a little bit too comfortable in this king role and a little bit less comfortable in the leader role. But it says, one evening when David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and it's kind of a strange thing, one evening as David got up from his bed. Now understand, when we talk about morning and evening and night in non-electrified places and times, night is when the sky is dark. Evening is around dusk time, and then after, because everything goes earlier because you don't have the electrification that's available to us today. So when it talks about in the evening, it's talking about late afternoon, and you get this sense that he was kind of taking his siesta later in the day than normal. And in all probability, we're looking at a situation in the spring or early summer when you have one of those desert Siroccos blowing in and he's up on the roof and he's cooling off. And there is someone else. Because as he walked around the palace, he saw a young woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. We're going to find out her name. Her name is Bathsheba. Now, I've read all sorts of people to try to say that Bathsheba was somehow or another alluring to David or knew that he was there or whatever the case may be, please. As David was on the roof refreshing himself, she was on her roof refreshing herself. She was in a place where she suspected no one was watching. There's no reason for her to believe that the king is watching. I mean, let's put it this way. You have a two-story house and you're showering in your house and your neighbor is one of those creepy types. And he has a drone flying outside and he's kind of focusing on your window in a... Uh, uh, are you somehow one of those people? No, it's that your neighbor's a creep. The problem isn't yours. David was a voyeur. He looked over the wall and he saw a woman who was refreshing herself, a woman who was bathing. 
And as the woman, because there is no indication that she was doing anything wrong. She was doing what women do on the roof of their house, expecting a sense of privacy. But when you look at people as objects and not as people, you can do that. You can do that because what satisfies you and what, what interests you is what's important. And the fact that you're invading somebody's privacy, the fact that you are peering into somebody's intimate life, uh, that doesn't matter because it, it satisfies you, you see. So, and, and by the way, we have all had occasions on the internet or in some place where we have stumbled upon something that we wish we wouldn't have seen. It's not the initial glance that gets us into trouble. It's the second click. It's the moving in. It's the, instead of averting your glance, you kind of get out the binoculars. That's what's going on in David's case. He's looking and he's allowing those appetites to awaken. And he says to somebody, who is that? And when he hears the words, that is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Something in David's mind ought to immediately a click, ought to immediate, should immediately click, and he should back away. Because Uriah the Hittite is a member of the group called the Thirty. Now the Thirty is a very significant group because they are David's most trusted, most worthy, most valiant soldiers. They are known by name. When he says she's the daughter of Eliam, that should likewise cause him to back off because Eliam is also a member of the 30. There's a connection here. And finally, when it dawns on him that it is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, the father of Eliam, David is about to cross a line that shouldn't be crossed because Ahithophel is David's most trusted advisor, the grandfather of Bathsheba. As a matter of fact, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, says, Now in those days the advice Ahithophel gave, that's Bathsheba's grandfather, was like that of one who inquires of God. That's how much influence, that's how much impact Ahithophel has in the life of David. And this man is about to cross a line and betray a young woman. Now in all likelihood, here's what we know about Bathsheba. We know that she is a woman that apparently has no difficulty having children. She is a man who has married a warrior named, named uh, Uriah, and we know that they have no children. She is probably a very young woman. When we read the condemnation of a man named Nathan, a prophet, he tells a story about the relationship of Uriah and Bathsheba that is a very intimate, loving relationship. She is probably a very young woman. She is probably recently married. We cannot guarantee this, but there is no indication in Scripture that she was, she was identified as a barren woman, unable to have children, that there was any problems with that. It is probably very early on in the marriage. It's a reasonable deduction, not ironclad, but it is reasonably there. 
you have this young woman. Now let's change gears just for a minute. Let's talk about a young woman that bathes in the afternoon and has no idea that there's been a voyeur that's been invading her privacy. David sends two of his officers. Now imagine if you are one of those officers and the king tells you, go bring that woman to me, and it's that time of night. Imagine the compromised position that you've been put in. You are asked to do something illicit. You are asked to do something illegal by the king, but you have no choice but to follow orders. That's the rule. And if you don't follow orders, your life may very well be forfeit. That's what David does to these soldiers that are under his command. Go get her. Now, you're a young woman, and it's well into the night, and a knock comes to the door, and there are two officials of the king that says, could you come with us, please? What are you going to do as a young woman, probably in her mid-teens? This is a classic abuse of power that is going on. You have this extremely powerful, the most powerful man in the kingdom, a, a, a person that to you is on a pedestal that is so incredibly high, and you are told to go to the palace. Are you going to say no? I want you to think about the dangerous position that Bathsheba is in, in that very moment. If she says no, do you want to know how dangerous a position she is in? Just think of what David does to Uriah in just a few short verses. David is a man with an appetite that is not going to be denied. And he simply takes her to the she's taken to the palace. He has his way with her. And then he sends her home. Alone in the dark, having been violated. This is a monstrous thing. This is, this, this is incredible. I mean, you just, you just consider a woman who wanted to be a faithful wife, a woman who has been taken to the palace of the king, now is alone in her home, self-loathing, carrying in her mind the title of infidelity, even though she was virtually forced into it. A woman that is wondering, what do I tell my husband? How do I explain this? Do I tell my husband... And she's left all alone. You know why? Because she's disposable. She's not a person. She's a thing. She's something that will satisfy the desire of a very rich, a very powerful, a very prestigious man, the king. He can do with her what he wants. Sent home. What's to become of me? You know much how much contact there is between David and Bathsheba after that moment? Zero. No apology, no contact, no nothing. She discovers she's pregnant. How long does that take? We used to joke about the rabbit dying. Now you know within days. You didn't know within days. You're probably talking about six weeks. I think that's reasonable, isn't it? Not if I'm right. Six weeks. 
Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. Six weeks of sitting alone, wondering. Comes that particular time when you wonder, is this to be? And then it finally settles in and the signs begin to know and your heart sinks when you realize, I'm pregnant. What's to become of me? What's to happen? When Uriah comes home, I will almost be cert- I will almost certainly be put to death. And so she does the only thing she can. She sends word to the king, I'm pregnant. Now there is no indication in this six-week period that there's been any communication at all. After she sends word to the to the king, do you know how much communication there seems to be? None. There's no record of him giving any contact, any communication at all. So from her perspective, tough luck. That's too bad. Why? Because people are to be used, not loved. As long as people fit my needs, they are a convenience to me. But But when they don't, I'm sorry, there's nothing there. No contact. But David does strike upon a plan. He says, I'll bring Uriah home. Now reasonably, four four to five days a week to get home from the battle. Maybe he could make it faster than that. But it's been probably six weeks. He says, I'll bring Uriah home. Get Uriah to sleep with his wife, and that will, everybody will think that Uriah is the father. She'll have a bouncing baby boy at seven months, eight pounds, six ounces, and everybody will think it's just an early pregnancy. I don't think so. But you see, that's how the mind thinks. And so now, not only is Bathsheba disposable, But you have this abuse of power, this abuse of personhood. When Uriah, he says, go home and sleep with your wife, and he becomes a partner in the deception without even knowing there's a deception going on. And he says, I can't do this because my troops are in the field. And they come back in the morning and say, Uriah didn't sleep with his wife. He he didn't go home last night because he is a man of principle. (laughs) That's the problem. Uriah is two principles. So David says, well, stay another day. He gets him good and drunk, thinking, well, of course he'll go down, go home and sleep with his wife. The problem is, Uriah is so principled that even drunk he's not in principle. Even drunk, when David tried to get him to... So he goes and he sleeps on the mats with all of the servants in David's household, no good. So David strikes upon yet another plan. He sends a message to his general that says, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines of the battle and at a given moment I want you to pull back and leave him standing by himself and he'll be killed. He is killing one of the 30. Killing one of the 30. Why? Because you see, Uriah is disposable. 
if he doesn't fit the king's needs, as long as he's a valiant soldier, as long as he's protecting the king, as long as he's doing everything he's told to do, that's great. But as soon as he becomes a liability, he's gone. Disposable people. That's what the world does, you know. As long as people fit my needs, as long as people give me affirmation, as long as people are what I want them to be or what I expect them to be, then they're my friends. But immediately when they're not, they're history, disposable people. Instead of loving people, we simply use them for our own means. And lo and behold, it happens. But as it happens, not only does Uriah die, but in order to get everything up there as it's supposed to be, there are a number of David's valiant men who also die in that particular battle. Now, Josiah, the general, is worried. Because a number of the trusted men have died, and so he sends back, he says, when you tell David about the battle, he may get upset and say, what's the matter with you? Didn't you know that putting men in this dangerous position would, could cause them the great possibility of death? What's the matter with you? And he, he was fearing censure from David. So he said, okay, look, this is what we want you to do. You just remind him that Uriah died in the battle. And David said, well, that's the fortunes of war. Why? Because the collateral damage that comes shows that David's concern was not for the men because why? They were disposable. It's becoming very dangerous to be David's friend. One of the most hazardous positions in the kingdom right now. Now, Everything is all said and done. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is pregnant. At home, still wondering what's to become of me when the word comes and says, you're a widow. Now we look at this and say, somehow or another, this was a relief to Bathsheba. But wait a minute. This is her husband. This is her husband that has been killed. Now she doesn't know the details of this. She's not privy to all of the intrigue that went on behind, but don't you think there was some sort of, this is too big a coincidence, and she is brought into the home to live now as the wife of her husband's murderer. This is a striking story. A woman who was violated. A woman who was widowed. A woman who was brought into the home of her husband's murderer. Why? Because the way world, the world looks at people, they are disposable. They're not valued for who they are. They're disposable. And there are so many categories of people that we kind of put in that disposable category. Sometimes entire races of people. And so we look at this story, and I will tell you that as the story goes on in the relationship of David and Bathsheba, there is no question that Bathsheba will become David's favored wife, if you will. She will he will grow to love her, and she will grow to love him. But this part of the story that we are in, this unseemly part of the story, there is no love about it. It is all lust. It is pure hormones. 
And I, there is no place in Scripture that I know of where Bathsheba is condemned for her action. Bathsheba is the victim, not in our victimology sense today where everybody's a victim of something, but this is a classic power abuse. The problem is when we, dis- when we view people as objects, we destroy their humanity. They become less than people to us. When a man looks at a woman who is a beautiful woman and looks at her with a lustful eye, he is denying her spirit, her soul. He is denying who she is as a person and looking at her simply as an object of his desire. When we look at people only for what they can give to us, we destroy them as a person. So here's the question. It's not your typical Christmas story, is it? Violation, murder, intrigue. This is not your typical Christmas message. Why do we have it here? Why are we talking about this particular woman today? Because Matthew does. Matthew says, I want you to know about this woman. Because there really is a Christmas message here. And the first thing that we see is when Matthew identifies her, he doesn't use her name. Why? Because there's a whole world of people that link the whole sordid affair together. They say David and Bathsheba, as though Bathsheba were somehow or another partner in the crime. Bathsheba is not partner in the crime. Bathsheba is victim of the crime. And so Matthew doesn't even name her, and he doesn't even connect her with David in this. If you notice, Uriah is not the father of Solomon, and yet Matthew takes her back to her position of innocence. He says, her mother was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That position, before the violation, before everything happened, it's as though Matthew says, God recognizes that she did not have a role in this. That she was one of those disposable people. And the second thing we learn from this is, you know, Jesus includes people that we wouldn't otherwise include. Because the world would look at Bathsheba and they would condemn her. David looked at Bathsheba and he had only lust for her. When we use people. When we treat people as objects, for the world lusts, God loves. He brings her into the family. He brings her and he elevates her to that position where he says, I want you to know that this woman who other people would exclude, this woman who other people would dispose of at their own convenience, she is valuable to me. That while others might look at the king and somehow make excuses or look the other way, I do not look the other way. I am the defender of the defenseless. I am the father of the fatherless. I am the lover of disposable people. 
Do you know how many people today consider themselves disposable? Do you realize there are entire classes of people? Do you know there are classes of people in India that are considered by virtue of their birth to be less than human? They are not even considered human beings. Disposable. To be dealt with as they please. Do you know in the Middle East that there are the, the mere fact that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord is enough to kill you, enough to be killed, enough to be sold into slavery. You're not a person, you're a Christian. You know, we look at people in our society that way. You know, sometimes we look at our spouse that way. Sometimes we look at our kids or our parents that way. We see people less advantaged, and they're not people to us. Where the world lusts for their own purposes, whether it be sexual or some other kind, God loves and values and esteems. Some of you today feel that way. Some of you today feel worthless because you've been told all your life you're worthless. You've been told all of your life, maybe by a harsh parent, maybe by a spouse, maybe even by a kid. You're not worth anything. You've been told by the looks that people give you. You've been told by the exclusion, you're not worthwhile. And you say, I'm nothing. God doesn't say you're nothing. God says you're something. You're valued. You're loved. You're to be included in the family tree of Christ, not hiding at the back of the tree, but brought out to the front as a trophy of God's grace. Where the world would say disposable, God says redeemable. God says, you can be part of my family. You can be brought into the family tree of Jesus, just like these people are. Not in the, not, not in the forerunners, but in the descendants of grace in Jesus Christ. And there's a final point here that can't be missed. Where the world says disqualified, God pronounces grace. Because you know what? You know who else is in the family tree? David. Doesn't David, hearing about this today, doesn't David make you a little angry? It does me. When I look at David, I think, geez. As a matter of fact, you should know that David has never really escaped the condemnation that comes from Bathsheba. We always hear the, these, these sensuous movies, David and Bathsheba. It still goes on today. Unless you think it's simply the world, listen to what 1 Kings says. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him, by making in Jerusalem, Jerusalem strong. Great. 
For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, the Uriah affair as it came to be known. At David's death, the pronouncement was made that said he almost made it, but in the case of Uriah the Hittite, he was wrong. It dogged him, and it continues to dog him today. But you know what? Where the world says disqualified, where the world says you're gone, where the world says you're history, David is included in the genealogy as well. And you know why I'm so glad he is? Because David is flawed, but so am I. David is flawed, but so are you. And you say, I couldn't possibly be in the genealogy. I couldn't possibly be part of the family tree of Jesus Christ. And yet, we can look and we say, but David is an adulterer, a treacherous friend, a murderer, and a hypocrite. Yet there he is. You know what this says to me? We all go by the same door. We all enter the same way. The scoundrel and the victim, the perpetrator and the victim, will all enter the same way. The grace of God. The grace of God is there, and the grace of God is sufficient. We have to turn. We have to come. David was a man after God's heart that had a devastating, vile period of his life. The scripture will not sugarcoat that. The scripture will not say it didn't happen. But the scripture will say God's grace is sufficient. That's the message of Christmas. So this week, love the manger story. Love the shepherds, the wise men, the stars. Love the journey. Love the flight to Egypt. Love all of those things because they're all wonderful parts of the story. Love the fact that Jesus came and that he was a great teacher. Love the fact that Jesus came and he was a wise man. Love the fact that Jesus came and he was a great ethicist. Love the fact that Jesus came and he was a great healer. But really love the fact that Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins. Really love the fact that Jesus rose from the dead that we might be part of the family tree of him, of Jesus Christ because that's what makes the difference. We fast forward to the life of Jesus and we see one day he went into the house of a man who was a tax gatherer people who, that people thought was the scum of the earth. And people looked at him and said, what is he doing with this sinner disposable person. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the genealogy teaches us. We are flawed people, but the grace of God is sufficient.
Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and thank you for the reality of the message of Christmas. Thank you for the message of the genealogy of Matthew that does not sugarcoat anything, that does not pretend as though nothing happened. Names the names of people whose stories are sorted and yet the grace of God is sufficient. Thank you for a God that identified with us as people, flawed people, not the brilliant, not the wise, not, not, not the ethically pure, but Lord, people who had deep and abiding and terrible problems because what that tells us is that he identifies with us. May this be the day of salvation for those who feel disposed of, for those who feel disposable. May this be the day of reckoning and change for those who are want to, to treat people as disposable people. Lord, may your word come and purge us and ensure us and affirm us in Jesus Christ today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the message of Christmas, folks. Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He came not to serve, be served, but to serve. And may that service this week change your life.